Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. I've been trying to get Claudia Sam on the weeds for a long time to talk about uh, her research on what monetary policy could do to prevent recessions. It hasn't been possible because for the longest time uh, she was working on the staff at the Federal Reserve Board and they, they would not let me interview her. But she has a new job now, so I was able to book her. I was so excited. Uh, this is not like a, a topic people are talking about all the time, but it is super duper duper incredibly important. The next time there is a recession, you are going to want to know what she has to say. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. My guest today, Claudia Sam, is the Director of Macroeconomic Policy at the Washington Center for Equitable Growth. I'm really glad to have you here. Yeah, no, I'm excited to be here today. I was I was trying to get you on the show while you were in your previous job uh, at the Federal Reserve, uh, but that was not allowed by yep. the— I was not allowed to do podcasts. So this <laughs> the is communications a masters. Brave so, new world for me. So now we get the truth. Um, so I, I, I really want to talk about your chapter on—this is a sort of a, a new idea about how we can stabilize the economy and prevent or, or combat recessions. Uh, but before we get into the, the details of that, I want to sort of motivate it. Like, why do we need new ways to think about this? How— how have we been trying to stop recessions and, and why aren't why isn't it good enough? Right. Well, I think there's been a longstanding concern about dealing with recessions, fighting recessions when they happen. They are incredibly damaging. So they're damaging to the people who lose their jobs in a recession when they've lost their jobs. And even after they go back to work decades later, they're they're hurt by it. Their careers are hurt. So the human costs of a recession are very big. We've policymakers have known this for a long time. And so we have many different tools that we try to use in a recession to blunt its effects, make it shorter, make it less severe. In previous decades, the thinking among policymakers is that the Federal Reserve takes the primary role mm -hmm. so that they have tools in their monetary policy toolkit, uh, lowering interest rates that they can help smooth out the recessions. Now, a conversation that's been very important since the Great Recession is that the Federal Reserve has had to use unusual tools. They refer to it as unconventional policy because they couldn't raise or they couldn't lower interest rates anymore, even early in the recession. And so they did asset-backed purchases. They tried to use forward guidance. 
which is very frightening to have economists using their words to move the economy. Uh, and so they were very creative. I firmly believe that the Fed will continue to be creative. There are more tools in their arsenal. But there's a legitimate concern that these are not as effective economically. I mean, ben Bernanke himself said with quantitative easing unconventional policy, it's kind of surprising they work. Like uh -huh. the economic theories don't say these should work. I, I believe he believes that they did work. But we're in a very different world. The other thing that is concerning is that the, the effects of those policies, the asset-backed purchases, they could have different implications for different people, say, in the wealth distribution, income distribution. And that that also could be very bad and long-term bad. The, the good old days, you know, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, up until the Great Recession, the Fed would basically fiddle with short-term Mm -hmm. interest rates. And right. that, and it was felt like until 2008, the general consensus was that this was fine, right? That right. we had taken the decision-making out of the hands of Congress, which is slow and full of nincompoops. And the Fed could sort of move fast, put rates down if they needed to be down, up if they needed to be mm -hmm. up. And, and it was working well. Right. No, and economists really believe, not surprisingly, that these decisions about how to deal with recessions were best left to the economists, to the technocrats, and that the Federal Reserve is full of them. And the, the Congress, in many of these recessions, especially very severe recessions, would step in. But they'd step in in the moment. They'd pass a tax rebate. They might, in the Great Recession, they did transfers to state and local governments. All of this was figured out at the time, and it was more to supplement mm -hmm. monetary policy. And just to drive home the point at how overconfident uh, economists got, uh, Robert Lucas in his presidential address at the annual economics meetings, not just a few years before the Great Recession, said, we have conquered recessions. That, you know, we know how to stabilize the business cycle. Fed has got it under control. And that turned out not to be very prescient. Right. He said, he said like the whole subject uh -huh. was we're, done. We're done. Uh, so part of this, right, you you would leave it to the technocrats, to the experts, because they could they could mm -hmm. do it right. But then also, you started to mention this, but with the conventional interest rate tool, it was understood that they, that didn't have a lot of complicated implications. So so you could you could leave it to the experts, at least in theory. But then what what went wrong? Because I mean I think I, I think it almost sounds silly, but like the interest rate couldn't go below zero. Right. Or the Fed has chosen not to pursue a policy that has negative interest rates. Some other countries, particularly in Europe, have explored this policy tool. I would say I would back up just a little mm -hmm. bit and I I agree that interest rates, so lowering the interest rates, that's easy to tell people. We can look at it in the financial markets. The way in which it affects the economy, economists point to a whole bunch of different transmission mechanisms. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's really good for people who have debt. Sometimes it's good for, there's just a lot of different, like it could be a confidence channel. So there's probably, I think there's like eight channels that, that uh -huh. economists point to, and we really don't know which one it is. And in fact, which one it is could have could have real implications for people, but it is simple, relatively right. simple. I mean, monetary policy is not simple to communicate, 
But that's a whole lot easier than saying we're going out and buying a whole bunch of mortgages. We're trying to move the the long-term treasury. I mean, this is just – it wades into a space where it's essentially – it's somewhere between impossible and very difficult to convey that, particularly to the American people. But also it's – it's to an extent, it's like um, – I always feel like the Fed to a little bit is like um, – it's like the wizard behind the curtain, right? And the more you get involved with, well, we're going to buy mortgage-backed securities or we're going to change 20-year bonds or just the, the more you're doing stuff that needs to be explained, the more visible it is that this group of people is making like really important decisions. And you might, you know, people might might get mad at you. People might criticize your choices. And that's not that's like not the role central bankers want to be playing. Yeah, no, and one of my unpopular opinions while I was still a Fed staffer is that I feel like the policies that the Fed pursued, and this also goes to the bailouts in the financial crisis. I mean, the Fed is the lender of last resort, and that is such a good thing. And then going into, like you said, these buying mortgage securities, moving into markets where they didn't tend to be, I really feel like the Fed used the political capital that they had to save Wall Street. Mm -hmm. I think they needed to do that. When it came time into the recovery, that was a very slow recovery. I followed consumer spending in my job at the Fed, and it was it was heartbreaking to see how slow, how painful it was when they went to do quantitative easing. So that's a main way to describe the policies, they didn't, they had drawn a lot of criticism from Congress. They had gotten a lot of attention. They did some things with the bailout that, frankly, nobody on the Hill knew they could do. Mm -hmm. uh, like I said, they got creative. There was a cost to that. So they were under, um, it's hard to imagine now how much political fire they're under, but they were under quite a bit in the recovery. And I feel like that constrained their ability to go big on quantitative easing because they just – they couldn't afford losing the Fed's independence. And this is something Bernanke talks about in his memoir. He did not want to go down as the chairman of the Federal Reserve that ended the Fed on right. his watch. But, I mean, this is uh, – this is very frustrating to me because I remember this period. And, and I remember this sort of professed concern from, from the staff and, and the leadership. And what I always wanted to, you know, yell was like – Fundamentally, like, nobody understands this and nobody cares. Like, the problem is that your job is to make the economy work and it's not working, you know? So you would hear people say, oh, like, we're getting all this criticism for quantitative easing. But, like, the basic issue was that until – really until this year, we have not had a condition in which the unemployment rate is, like, at a reasonably low level. Yeah, but we don't know that it's – as low as it can go. Right. <laughs> but and, and and the Fed at multiple points over the past few years has said it's as low as it can go without inflation taking off. So I think the Fed is just – they have painted themselves into a corner to some extent. And uh, from – and this happened early in the recession. I think one of the, the saddest moments I felt for Chairman Bernanke is watching him in public try to explain to the American people – that the Federal Reserve's policy had been so successful in the Great Recession because we had avoided the Great Depression. Sure. Good luck with that. Like, people can't imagine the alternate universe in which 
he didn't act, in which the Federal Reserve didn't act. So if they're left with that's the best they can do to explain it, this this is not going to work well. And then they, for years and years, their predictions of where the economy would be next year are wrong. Right. So, So, okay. So in general, what is an automatic stabilizer? So an automatic stabilizer is support to the economy or support to individuals, businesses that just kicks on. Mm-hmm. So there's something that happens in the economy. There has to be a trigger. And and then we say, okay, we're going to give them money. We're going to reduce taxes. Taxes, in fact, are an automatic stabilizer. Right. Because so, in a recession, incomes go down. Pro- taxes are progressive. So you pay less. So we, we have lots of these already. We could have more. Right. And we often talk about the sort of basic welfare state. As, mm-hmm. a, as an automatic stabilizer, if you lose your job, you get Medicaid, you get unemployment insurance, uh, you're not paying income taxes. And this makes the budget deficit bigger, which causes some people to freak out. But this is supposed to be economically helpful. Right. And it's it's helpful all the time. I mean, people lose their jobs every month, every day. The reason it's considered a way to fight recessions is a lot of people lose their job in a recession. And and Congress in the past has given extensions a number of weeks. I mean, the United States number of weeks is not that long, but they give extensions number of weeks. Sometimes they'll increase the payments. Food stamps, you see this too. So they, Congress has recognized and has acted to support the economy in an automatic way. Like they don't have to sit down and vote on it. They don't have to figure out. I mean, in some cases they do, but a lot of it's just pre-programmed. Right. And so, I mean, you you used to focus on, on studying consumer spending, which is where, with these stabilizers, you really see it, right? I mean, people, when the economy goes bad, people lose their jobs, incomes fall, people don't buy as much stuff, uh, but they are able to buy more stuff than they would without, you know, food stamps, without unemployment insurance. So we don't Otherwise, you might just have, like, every store closing. Right. That would be bad. <laughs> uh, and I think in addition to giving people money to spend, there is a big confidence effect, mm-hmm. especially early in a recession. Unemployment, it takes time to build up. Like, not everybody loses their job on day one of a recession, but people can freak out on day one of a recession because they don't know. Most Americans do not have a lot of money saved up. And so if they see people around them starting to lose jobs and they know they are basically one paycheck away from a lot of financial distress, they're going to start pull back on their spending even if they're getting the income they always get. So there's an aspect of just getting money out there quickly mm-hmm. that tells people the government's got your back. We're going to do something. And you can see it like it's a check in the mail. Right. So, 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 I mean, this is like people buy – you know, durable goods, right? Over time, people need appliances, people want furniture, people want cars. And if you start to worry, right, this is the the, the confidence channel. If you start to think, uh, I might lose my job, then you sort of cancel those plans because you can you can get by, right, without it. And you're trying to build up a kind of financial buffer. And that's fine. There's there's nothing wrong with saving money. Uh, in some ways, it's it's good. But the problem of a recession, right, is that if everybody says okay, maybe I'll wait till next year, then we all have a big collective problem, right? Right. And I, one piece of a recession that's fundamentally what defines a recession is the economy as a whole starts to go under, to mm-hmm. contract. And 
I think there's some very compelling survey evidence that shows exactly this about durable spending. So it asks households every month, is it a good time to buy a durable? Mm-hmm. Sometimes like household goods, sometimes automobiles. And what you see in a recession, and households are very good at picking up when we're starting to go into a recession, is a huge decline in the individuals who tell us it's a good time to buy. And what I find really striking and may not be as widely appreciated is it's everybody. Mm-hmm. Like at all income levels, high income people, middle. So, and that's what defines a recession is if everybody gets worried and starts pulling back, that's, that is a big, and it can actually spiral. Right. Because, right, it's like if everybody decides let's not buy a toaster, then everybody loses their toaster jobs and it get, it gets worse and worse. Yep. Okay. So I think with this basic groundwork in place, uh, let, let's take a break, uh, do, do ads, keep the, uh, national accounts flowing, um, and then then come back to your specific proposal here. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Okay, so you have an idea. It's written in a, a book chapter in a, a book that's called Recession Ready, which is a sort of a, a set of proposals to improve these automatic stabilizers. Uh, and you had an idea that I think is uh, it's really intriguing in its simplicity because I think that helps address a lot of the the sort of practical problems that that exist here. So why don't you tell people what what is it? How can we how can we do this? Okay, so my proposal is as soon as we think we're in a recession, and I'll come back to we have yeah. some good good indicators for that. As soon as we're in a recession, send money out to households. Send it out to all households and make it big. 
like a thousand dollars, scale it up if they have kids. So get that money out, get it quickly. It goes to everybody. It's very transparent. Right. So this is like basically like keep it simple, right? And one intriguing thing about this that that I think flips some old conventional wisdom on his head, right, is uh, when Larry Summers was sort of orchestrating stimulus ideas, he said we needed to be timely, targeted, and temporary. Um, you are aiming for timely here, but but not for targeted. That's right. And this this comes in part from my reading of the research, my own research that I've done. As you mentioned before, at the Federal Reserve, I was one of the economists in charge of thinking about consumer spending, consumer behavior. My first forecast that I worked at the Federal Reserve was in January of 2008. Mm -hmm. So my entire education (laughs) as a macroeconomist out in the real world was in the Great Recession, in the long recovery. Part of my job early on, given this timing, is that I spent a lot of time thinking about the stimulus that the government was giving to households. Mm -hmm. The Federal Reserve does not take a stand. They don't go up to Congress and tell people this is exactly how you ought to do the fiscal stimulus. Sometimes they'll say, please do more. Um, But they don't tell them how to do their jobs. But for economists like me who work on the forecast that we prepare before every federal open market committee meeting, we have to understand and make an educated, evidence-based guess at how that's going to affect the economy because then the Fed does its policy taking that into account. So that meant I did a lot of reading the research, understanding the research, and I contributed to that research. Mm -hmm. And I was able to study the 2008 tax rebates, the 2009-10 making work pay, the 2011-12 payroll tax cut. So after all that, I got a lot of opinions (laughs) on how to do this stimulus. My read of the data is targeting by income. So focusing on lower income households, which some economists would say that's the right thing to do. I don't think the evidence is conclusive. Mm -hmm. I have some other reasons why I don't think that's the right thing to do. There is a lot of research that targeting it to individuals who have low savings, not a lot of money in the bank, that would be powerful. Mm -hmm. I think that is probably true I think it is basically impossible to target those people. Right. And so I want this out fast, and I'm not willing to trade off between taking a lot of time, collecting the data, and just getting it out. Right. So, I mean, I I think that that's one sort of key turning point here because part of the obsession with targeting is like a fear that you're going to accidentally, like, do too much or or something, right? That, like, 10 cents will get wasted someplace and, and, and you can't do that. And I think the experience of the past 10, 12 years has been that the, the real risk is that the political sustainability of your actions just runs out before you need to do it, right? And, like, part of the genius of this is that nobody— Nothing is uncontroversial in life, but but no but nobody needs to feel bad, right? There's no like, well, why is he getting the money? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, and I think that's incredibly important for giving cover and general support for other kinds of stimulus support that goes to households that's very specific. Mm-hmm. People who lost their job, people who need to go on food stamps. Frankly, I think we could have made a lot more progress in supporting underwater 
mortgage borrowers. Mm-hmm. There just there was not the political will. There was I mean because there wasn't support from people because they're like, well, you made a bad decision. Right. You got to pay for it now. Now that was incredibly harmful to the economy and those same people that were saying it. But again, that's hard. That's hard to understand. So I think this get it out early. Everybody gets one. So they're like, oh, I got support. So this person over there needs a little bit more. Okay. Now, about this, like, bipartisan support for doing this kind of direct payments, we have experience with this. So in 2001, 2008, there's some examples in the past. Congress agreed when things started going south, Mm -hmm. we're going to get out money. Tax rebates, stimulus payments, and and often those were broadly out to the economy. There was a little bit of tailoring to high income, but they went out. Now, and that's in my proposal. I think that's very doable. I think the question is about committing to it now, Mm -hmm. making it automatic, but we'll set that aside. The other thing that's in my proposal that was very intentional, having watched the long recovery, is that in a severe recession, part of the proposal is that Congress will commit ahead of time to continue these payments every single year until the unemployment rate starts to come down. Right. So your idea is in, instead of what happened in 2008 was they kind of – this was uh, back – this was George W. Bush's final year. Democrats were in Congress. Uh, this was what they could agree on basically rather than a technical analysis. Uh, but was they mm-hmm. – they cut checks to everybody um, and then the economy kept getting worse mm-hmm. and the world just kind of moved on. From, from that whole concept. And and your idea, right, is to instead of as a one-off, right, it's a it's a program. There is – we'll talk about the, the metrics, but it just sort of automatically goes out. But I, I think we should talk about, about that 2008 uh, bill because I, I, I feel like the conventional wisdom on that kind of has turned twice over the course of my career. And at first, there was a lot of sense that that didn't work or it was mm-hmm. disappointing. Um, and now, I mean, I, I, I know you um, – have a different read of that. And, and I think I, I think a lot of subsequent research has, has shown that that was actually, even though obviously it didn't prevent the recession, that it was actually quite helpful. Yeah, no, and I think the time is ripe in a way that it wasn't in 2008 to really commit to these big stimulus payments. So that was, because sta- there's a lot of research that has come out since. It's really good. Notwithstanding, I am sure whenever the next recession happens, I will read an op-ed within months of it happening with some ridiculous chart of the saving rate that says, oh, the saving rate went up, which is a sign of households pulling back on spending. Mm -hmm. And so the payments didn't work. Right. Now, you just – you have no idea what the saving rate would have done otherwise. Uh So, like, these are just – they're absurd, but they are, like – Weeds, they will always show up. Oh, not like the weeds here, but like bad weeds. <laughs> yeah, so, so yeah. what happens is, right, the checks go out and then somebody does – they show, right? The savings mm-hmm. rate goes up. It's a recession. So then someone says, oh, people were supposed to spend the extra money, but they used it to pay down their credit card bills. So right. it didn't work. And we just wasted $100 billion right. of the people's money and it did right. nothing. Yeah, so what has – happened since then, and this is particularly in the 2008 stimulus payments. There's also research on 2001, but I think that because it started to build up, there was a lot of understanding. And there was what we often refer to as gold standard research. Mm -hmm. So at the Fed, we do say the word gold, but in a very specific context. (laughs) And there was a team of authors, so uh, David Johnson, Robert McClellan, Jonathan Parker, Nick Salalis, who used a very uh, technical feature of how the the tax rebates in 2001, the stimulus payments in 2008 went out. So there's this fascinating aspect 
of government that we can only send out so many checks in a week. Uh-huh. So just like <laughs> cutting them, mailing them. And so knowing this, particu- this was particularly binding in 2001 because the actual electronic fund transfers weren't as common. Uh-huh. So, so what, they really needed the paper. Yeah, they checks. really they sent a lot out by paper. And so to equitably deal with this very wonky restriction, they said we will send them out according to the last two digits of people's social security numbers. So you got a great randomization. Experiment. You got an amazing randomization. And so with these authors, and they were very savvy to get extra survey questions on the consumer expenditure survey, which is one of the main, like, what did you spend Uh in the last month? And they were able to show in both episodes really convincing evidence. I mean, no evidence is, you know, (laughs) without criticism. But they they were able to show this in a way that I think broadly across economists, they understood people spend a lot of this. And I also did research with Matthew Shapiro and Joel Slemrod, a very different kind of survey design, just asking people, did you mostly spend it? Mm -hmm. And we also find spending effects are, it's a little hard to compare the two. I would say ours are probably a little less powerful, Mm -hmm. but they're there. Like they're more than what the typical economist, like, oh, you get a dollar and you spend it it out over your whole life, annuity value, blah, blah, blah. Uh Um, That does not seem to be what, I mean, that just is not what households do in a recession. And so if you give them money, you're going to get something as a boost. And again, to the the targeting point, you don't find that that's hugely differentiated. Like I said, targeting by income. Mm -hmm. I don't see the evidence there as conclusive. Sometimes people will find it. Sometimes they won't. I just, and again, where you might want to build political cover wouldn't necessarily be at the bottom of the income distribution. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, So I, person, but this is one where economists- Everybody likes money. Everybody likes money. And- you know, I will say the proposal I put out, this is me reading the literature, me thinking about what's feasible mm-hmm. and what could be popular. Mm-hmm. Like, I like to think about these things, too. But it's entirely possible if Congress committed, we're going to do this right now, that you could sit down a whole group of experts, mm-hmm. economists, people who work in government administration, people who work in public policy, and they could hammer out something that could be better than what I'm proposing. I, I'm totally open to that. It's like, go team. Like, let's uh-huh. let's do this. Uh, but the benefit right now of having this conversation is, like you said, there there's research out there. There's evidence. There is a conversation to be had at all those, among all those different groups that are involved in something like a direct stimulus payment. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I really believe now is the time to be doing this. Right. And in theory, if you have the pre-commitment, in place, right? A a thought process that should operate is, oh, I'm afraid there might be a recession, so I'm going to get a little bit more cautious with what I do. But wait, then I remember that if there actually is a recession, there's going to be extra money coming in to me and also to everyone. So it probably won't be so bad. So I really don't need to pull back that much, right? I mean, to to an extent, it should should work – Without actually even doing anything. I, I don't want to say without yeah, doing no, it. It's, it's not a trick, uh, but it's supposed to – if you can make people think that there will be an effective, timely response to a problem, that can make the problem less severe. Yeah. No, it, it can build confidence. Now, this is this is something we don't have a lot of 
evidence for mm-hmm. because I think this this proposal, these payments to everyone, I think its confidence effects would be very different from some of the other automatic stabilizers mm-hmm. like unemployment insurance. I think the benefit of this confidence effect is for people that are never going to lose their job. They may not know it, but yeah, they're never yeah. $1,000 could help kind of make them feel better. Mm-hmm. And and again, like you said, if everybody goes out and stop buying the toasters, then that that in and of itself causes layoffs and even more negative concerns about the economy. So I I think it's entirely possible that this could have confidence effects and I firmly believe that the confidence effects are are important in what happens in the recession. And I think that's a really important reason why Congress needs to do something. Like if they if they don't do I think this is what they should do, but if they don't do this they 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 need to come up with something else because one thing that I don't think um politicians think about enough is that what happened in 2008 has punctured the confidence that had existed during the the Great Moderation era, right? If for some reason a, a, there's re, a new recession starts, right? Me and everybody else who writes about the economy, we're going to have to say the Fed doesn't have conventional tools. There's no plan in place for what to do. It's going to be up to Congress to come up with something on the fly, and they're paralyzed over impeachment, right? Like, I, I, I don't like I don't want to contribute to mass panic about but an economic would. downturn, but like I would. That like that's the factual situation, and I would much rather report. Oh, we're really glad that last year they passed the Direct Stimulus Act. So even if this situation abroad causes problems, like you're going to get money yeah. in the bank, like there's something there's there's a plan in place. Like that's the basics of confidence. And back in 2007. The reporting, I I mean, it turned out the conference was misplaced, but Mm -hmm. we thought that the Fed knew how to beat recessions. Now we know they don't, and right now we have nothing set up. Right. So I guess a few things. I I still believe the Fed has tools to combat recessions, and they can move a lot earlier. You know, financial markets (laughs) start looking bad. They can ease up. And I think you can point to examples of that even in the last decade. Mm -hmm. I think one aspect that I'd hope you'd point to as a confidence (laughs) is the recession-ready volume exists. Yes. So Heather Boucher, who's now my boss, uh, (laughs) she had worked on the Hill during the Great Recession. And she said it would have been amazing to have a book on the shelf that they could pull off. It has details. I mean, I was really pushed by Hamilton Project to Uh put numbers in my proposal. I mean, I thought I was going to do a literature review. And they're like, no, 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 it works better (laughs) if you say like 1% of consumer spending and, you know, the timing and all that. And I think that makes sense when Heather's point was we didn't, we really did have to scramble. We had to think about these details that it would be nice if there was a concrete proposal (laughs) that we could just go with. So I think there are benefits. And really, I think that's... uh, Okay, so I'm a macroeconomist. You're now my third guest who is involved in that book. So I am am trying to get this out there. This is like my like top priority in life. So you can just I I want people on the hill to know this. So, but I think there's another aspect that I think is important with doing these ahead of time that would also help your confidence because you care about the details. (laughs) Details matter. One of the things I found fascinating in in doing more reading about my proposal. So I had a lot of fun with the inspector general reports from the Treasury. Okay. Because 
there was such a scramble, not just on the Hill, at the Internal Revenue Service, the Social Security Administration, when Congress said, okay, this is what we're going to do. We're going to send out these checks. Oh, wow. Like, there's a lot of administrative details. There always are with these checks. One of the things they did in 2008 is they said, we want to make this broader so anyone who's receiving Social Security payments, Mm -hmm. because we have payment information for them, they're going to get a check too. Now, because the IRS was overseeing all of this, what these Social Security recipients had to do was file a tax return. Right. They wouldn't normally because they have no taxable tax liability. Social Security had to get the word out to their beneficiaries, file a return. And this was what the inspector general was pointing out both on the Internal Revenue Service side but on Social Security Administration. They did a heavy lift, and they did it fast. Mm -hmm. So – we don't have to do that to them every time. Sure. Uh, we can set up, if they know this could happen, this would happen in a recession, they can get the administrative framework in place so it's always ready to go. They In 2008 and in the past, there was no way to get these stimulus payments out during tax season. Mm-hmm. And the IRS is busy then. Sure. So, but if you created infrastructure, not only could you get it out Anytime you needed it, you could get it to a broader population, populations that get food stamps. I mean, like, there's just a lot more you could do if you let administrative agency officials think about it, get structures in place. Right. So, I mean, this 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 is definitely the weeds, but but mm-hmm. it's important, right? Because yeah. this was formally structured in 2001. It was it was a tax rebate, mm-hmm. quote unquote. So that meant it, it sort of piggybacked on the IRS tax infrastructure. Um, so. As you say, they have a busy season. There's also people who are not filing mm-hmm. tax returns. But we could, and you're saying should, set up a system that's broader than that, right? So let everybody gets the thousand yeah, dollars. Yeah. Oh. Do you do do people with kids get extra money? In my proposal, they do. in In 2001 and 2008, I know in 2008 they did raise it depending on the number of. I mean, obviously, it doesn't like stand or fall on that point. Yeah, but. yeah, no, but I think. That's important. And there have been times like in 2003 where they they in, did some child tax credits. So there's different ways to mm-hmm. target. And I, I think, you know, the number of people in a household that need to eat and have things spent on that. I mean, this makes sense why you would uh, – <laughs> I don't really think of that as targeting. I think of that as getting every like sure. literally everybody money. When you talked about 2001, this reminded me of another – this is a point probably only economists could love – is that Congress – did more than stimulate the economy. Mm-hmm. You know, there's this idea that, you know, never let a crisis go to waste. This yeah, is yeah. the time to – the 2001, the Bush administration with Congress approval put through a permanent tax cut. Mm-hmm. The stimulus payments, the tax rebates were like taking some of those tax cuts, bunching them up at time and pushing them out in checks. Right. But the changes to the tax code, the reductions in taxes went on – well past that. Right. Now, the problem is you want to send out stimulus. You want to support the economy in a recession. The idea, I guess now there's some economists that disagree with this, but the idea is you don't want to blow out the budget deficit. Mm-hmm. And so what you do is you are willing to spend more than you take in as a government during a recession and then an expansion. Like now, you would usually – take in more revenue. And and so you would bring down the deficit. By putting a permanent tax cut in place, you're not committing to do that. Mm -hmm. And then you have administrations cutting taxes when we're in an expansion. And so 
there, I, I still think there's space in a recession and the government, regardless of how much debt we have going into it, should support people and businesses in a recession. But it, it gets harder and, and more controversial the mm-hmm. more debt we're carrying at any time. So given that people sort of worry about, about debt and, and overall debt loads, would there be a way to do this that doesn't involve borrowing the money? I mean, could in, in some sense, uh, people talk about this loosely, but you you worked at the, the actual Fed. Could, could the Fed, quote unquote, print the money and give it to people so there's no debt incidence? Oh, my gosh. Now you're going to get me to talk about monetizing the debt with the Fed, which, well, in essence, because they haven't run the balance sheet back down, the Fed has done some of that sure. monetization. But, but like, we, like, so instead of, quote unquote, writing a check for $1,000, the Bureau of Printing and Engraving could print up ten hundred dollar bills and put it in an envelope yeah, to no, someone. And, and so, like, what, what I mean— Logistically, that sounds annoying, but at the same time, like if the uh, debt balance is going to be a first order concern for people, then then right. why not? Well, and I think you know there's an, definitely an argument to be made that during because 2008 wasn't just about the United States; it was a global financial crisis. Mm-hmm. There was a interest across the globe in having safer assets. U.S. Treasuries are right up there in terms of being safe assets. You could issue a lot more Treasuries, bring in more revenue. So I think you're right. There are different ways to do it. I don't think regardless, in a recession is not the time to get stingy Mm because you will pay for it. Like Mm -hmm. we, we continue to pay for how severe the Great Recession was. Right. So, like, I mean, as we're a talking, whole economy, pay for it. I mean, people, t- I, I think in a way, I mean, this is still not by you, but by the world underrated. I mean, we're talking trillions of dollars in lost economic activity forever, right? Yeah, no, and I, I think it's very convincing that some of the slowdown in productivity growth, so just, you know, how much people it takes to make stuff, I think the slowdown is in part because of the Great Recession. Mm -hmm. You had companies pulling back on innovation. You had consumers not being wanting to spend. And that productivity growth being on a lower path, that's a huge problem for standard of living. So, again, there are differences of opinion about what's happening with productivity growth because it's basically the sum of our ignorance as economists because it's just (laughs) the residual, but it's really important. I did want to dive into one more uh, very wonky detail, which we talked about in the report. And this is one, uh, whenever these Hamilton Project uh, volumes are put together, they have a conference. So the authors, like myself, you know, did our draft proposal. And then we go in and we present it to some academics, but largely people that are in think tanks or maybe in, like, the congressional budget, you know, that they come and just policy react people. to it. Policy people who, like, really know how to do this stuff. And one of the conversations that got going, and I've had this um, with other people, so Hill staffers and things like that, is, well, what would the Congressional Budget Office do in terms of scoring it or, or telling Congress how expensive it would be? So there's two aspects of this. One is— In the CBO forecast, there's never a recession. Yeah, yeah. So, so they would, they, Well, yeah, yeah. They're not that stupid. Um, <laughs> 
nor are we. Uh, so what they'd have to do is some kind of a probabilistic. Right. So there's about a 25% chance in any given year there's going to be a recession, mm -hmm. something like that. So they'd have to have some probability over the 10-year window. So that would affect the cost. Like if Congress waits until we're in a recession, CBO's like, yeah, the $100 billion is going out. There's no smoke and mirrors here. You're going to pay for this. Now, there's another very interesting wrinkle that isn't guaranteed that CBO would do this. They have started with some of their proposals from Congress to do what's called dynamic scoring. Mm -hmm. So they think about not just how many mon money would go out the door from the government, but they think about, well, what would the effect on the economy be? Sure. So with these stimulus payments, I mean, I've argued, and I think it's well-backed by evidence, that if you send the stimulus payment out— you're going to make the recession less severe. Right. You're going to, and when a recession is severe, you get less in tax revenue. So there is this feedback that when you do this, their models, if they took this into account, like the second round, the third round effects, it would make it, it wouldn't cost $100 billion. It might cost $80 billion or yes. 50. I mean, depending on how excited you are about this. And then that means if they do it now, Congress has less, to, like, put into that sure. deficit <laughs> estimate. So, anyway, so there's a lot of interesting details that could make this a very, like, do-it-now yeah. kind of policy. Okay, let's, let's take another break, and then I want to talk about uh, some rule and, and some other stuff like that. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity— but giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. So I, I feel like this came out, and you, you immediately became uh, economics, Twitter, internet famous, uh, not just for the, the suddenness of the proposal, but for a sort of clever thing on the side, which is, if you want to do this automatically, the way the way your proposal is structured, you need a trigger. That classic automatic stabilizers, right? Food stamps works as an automatic stabilizer just in the sense that the more poor people there are, the more people get the food stamps. So it doesn't have a formal trigger. Uh, but but you do um, because – Otherwise, the checks wouldn't go out, uh, and and it's it's an interesting it's an interesting idea. It's an interesting story. Uh, so how how do we know? Right. So the problem I was trying to solve for, and you alluded to this, is to send out payments early in a recession. We have to know that we're in a recession, and now looking back, that might seem totally obvious, but in fact. There is a group at the National Bureau of Economic Research. They're referred to as the Recession Dating Committee. 
Yeah. Don't ever let them set you up on a date. But they are in charge of determining when the economy was at its peak. And then when it's – so at the peak and then you're going to fall. So that's the start of a so recession. They do, so they do it in retrospect. Yeah. So like in the great – for the 2008 recession, they made their announcement that the peak was in December of 2007, a year after right. that, that time. So that is not the time where it's – the best time to send out these stimulus payments. Right. You could have used it a lot earlier. Uh, right. That's fine for economic research. Right. But That's, it doesn't, yeah, it doesn't looking, work for policy. Looking back, it's totally fine. You can't wait for them. Another uh, conventional wisdom is if you see two, two quarters of GDP, negative GDP growth, so output, right. national output contracting for two quarters. But that's six months. Then we're in a recession. Right. That's at least six months right. because those data also get revised. So neither of these are as good as the <laughs> indicator I came up with. So, yeah. But I am surprised and heartened by the reaction that my recession indicator has gotten. It has been named the SOM rule. This is nowhere in my chapter. It's always referred to as a recession indicator. I had, when I did the author's conference, Jay Shambaugh, who, when I was at the Council of Economic Advisors, a senior economist, he was the member that I worked most closely with because mm -hmm. he covered macroeconomics. In late 2015, particularly early 2016, the economy was going through a rough patch. So oil prices come down a lot. There had been a lot of uh, distress in the energy production side. So there were just a lot of things going on. And of course, the, the Federal Reserve had raised interest rates the December before uh, in 2015. And so we had started projects of recession watch. Mm -hmm. So essentially doing analysis, looking at different indicators. We had a little dashboard of red, green, and orange things. And so he said at that time, he had been working on this kind of recession indicator, like a small increase in the unemployment rate. I mean, this is conventional wisdom for a long time among people that follow this kind of stuff mm -hmm. that like small increase in the unemployment rate are a bad sign. So, but when we did the author's conference in like February of this year and I showed kind of the first draft of my indicator, he's like, Claudia, this is really good. Mm -hmm. He's like, I tried to do this and I didn't do as well. So I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and I fiddled around with it some more and there's some details about some nice flourishes to my indicator, but it works really well. It's really trans. It's really straightforward. Mm -hmm. uh, so what is? Okay, so what is it? <laughs> so the SOM rule. So what I do is I look at the monthly unemployment rate. Mm -hmm. I take the three month average. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't want anybody to overreact to little blimps and wiggles from month to month. Anything which, can happen in one month. Yeah, anything can happen in one month. So I look at that three month average, and then every month I compare that number to the low over the prior twelve months. Mm -hmm. And if in the current month that that unemployment rate is up a half a percentage point or more, we're in a recession. Okay. Like, and since the 1970s, that has been true every single time. Mm -hmm. This thing does not turn on outside of recessions. That would be kind of a costly mistake if you're sending out $100 billion. Right. Uh, so that's the trigger. On average, it turns on four months into a recession, mm -hmm. right? So that's... And sometimes it's sooner. Uh, and that's way earlier than any other indicator that's been used widely. Right. So the GDP growth, the, you know, NBR telling us. 
Uh, so that has the benefit of getting it out early. And this takes advantage of the fact that we get unemployment data on a monthly basis rather than quarterly, like GDP. Yeah. That the first re- – I mean, there are revisions to the unemployment data, but they're not as big as the, the GDP yeah. ones. No, and I was very intentional about using the unemployment data. I mean, back in my Fed world, or frankly, my macro tracking fun world that I live in, there's all kinds of tools. We've got these, like, recession regime switching models, factor, blah, blah, blah. I mean, the Fed (laughs) looks at all kinds of stuff, as they should. Mm -hmm. But I would never want to explain to Congress or have them write legislation that depends on one of these models spitting out, like, we're in a recession. Unemployment rate, as you said, it comes out early a month out, or it comes out just weeks after the month mm-hmm. is over. People are familiar with it. People are familiar with it, and it matters. Like, this is the reason recessions are so bad. People lose their jobs. Mm-hmm. Like, so to me, it's just, it has so many attributes, and it's really easy to explain. It's really easy to write down in a piece of legislation. But I will say, so I I was surprised, mm-hmm. pleasantly surprised at the reaction. In fact, when I went to the launch event in May— and, you know, they open with Ben Bernanke and Christy Romer doing a fireside chat about all the policies, you know, looking back. And early in that event, before I had gone up to talk about my proposal, they started mentioning the SOM rule. Uh-huh. And I was like, oh, my gosh, what are you all doing to me? Because, And I think part of it is they knew I would be embarrassed. And so, like, it had gotten dubbed this. And, and you know, I kind of pushed back. I, well, I was just like, I, this, I'm really uncomfortable. I talked to Christy Romer after the event and expressed some of this discomfort. Like, I, I didn't know this was coming. And and she looked at me and she's like, Claudia, you have got to own this. Sure. Any man would own this. <laughs> and I was like, okay. So Christy Romer is like a hero, so smart, amazing policy person, an economist. So like, how can I not listen to Christy Romer? There you go. So I tried. It took a little while. Um but then uh, people really latched onto it. Like this, again, being at the Federal Reserve, knowing that small increases are a bad sign, I didn't think this was a big deal. Mm-hmm. And frankly, I had several colleagues who told me what I did wasn't a big deal because, like, they already <laughs> knew this. But over time, as the reaction was so large, I realized, well, actually, what I did is a big deal. Because people outside of the Fed or people outside of those who get Wall Street newsletters from Mm -hmm. former Fed economists, they didn't know. So I actually did share something that was very internal. I mean, the Fed used it in very smart ways. Mm -hmm. I mean, their rule of thumb is more – it's a three-tenths increase. Um, For them, a false positive, which there are false positives of that indicate – like, it's not that big of a deal. I mean, if the Fed cuts a quarter point, it's not like the world ends. So I realized I actually had done something – that was important because on the Hill, they didn't know. And frankly, there were individuals in policy think tanks who came up to me at the event, and they're like, we didn't think, when they described it, totally did not think this would work. Uh Uh-huh. But it does. Yeah. Uh, Well, look, obviously, I am a believer in the importance of communicating about policy um, outside of things. And no, I mean, I think it's uh, it's super important. I I had no idea. I mean, you know, obviously, I was broadly aware that Mm -hmm. the unemployment rate going up is not a good sign. Um, But it's actually almost surprisingly powerful, right, Um, in the regularity with which this this follows. Because people always ask, you know, like some— some thing will happen and the stock market goes down or commodity prices. Ah, you know, we we now people um, almost overpredict 
mm-hmm. recessions because there's a post Great Recession sort of mentality. Yeah, yeah. No, and it was a, it was a good way to calm people down a couple months ago. Yeah, no, when the yield curve inverted. You exactly. Know, that, yeah, which I was like, yeah, this is not. We are and not in a recession. A lot of the Wall Street notes, you know, rely on this uh, the the yield curve thing, like. Some of these things have a have a witchcraft element to it, mm-hmm. um, and the the actual labor market data is a lot more convincing when you can. I mean, not just statistically, but right, you can explain to people like why this is that it's actually very unusual uh, to to see unemployment going up on that kind of uh, that kind of level and and that kind of degree. So then, in in your proposal, you hit this trigger, the money would come out, and then it would continue going out until when? Well, what, what turns it off? So in a severe recession, which I define as the unemployment rate in the first year rises two percentage points or more. Mm -hmm. So this, since the 1970s, this has only happened three times, Mm -hmm. right? So the uh, 81-82 recession, 74-75, switched in order, and the uh, 2008-2009. Those are the only three that hit that that mark. And in those, I say every year you'd continue the payment until it gets down, not back to Mm pre-recession, but a lot closer. Again, this was very much motivated by what I saw after the Great Recession in terms of policymakers in 2013 when uh, those payments stopped, any kind of broad stimulus. So the mm-hmm. payroll tax cut expired. The unemployment rate was still really high. Right. And that's bad. Right. right. So uh, and I think that was true in all of these very severe recessions. There need There's a big case for like having had more. Right, right. And 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 in this case, right, it doesn't require that sustained political momentum because that was the problem. I mean, I remember it was driving me crazy, the negotiations in 2013, but it was just like nobody wanted to fight for continuing the payroll tax holiday, even though there was no— there was no like data case that we were out of the recession or things were fine. Yeah. But it was like Congress had moved on. Yeah, well, and frankly, by that point, I think we were to one of the worst stimulus benefits you could have given to the American people. I mean, if that's all you could have, if that's all Congress could agree on, I Uh would have been happier than it ending. But another thing that the research shows, and this is very much from the work I had done, if you give the stimulus out to people in dribs and drabs, Mm -hmm. like every paycheck you get a little bit, first of all, you're not going to get a big bang all at once, which is what you want to do is like, cut this recession short. But the other thing is they don't know they're getting it. I I am a big— Now, you can find an infamous, I believe, New Yorker article in which you have Obama people bragging that they have devised a secret stimulus that people won't realize they're getting. Yeah, well, yeah. No, you I know mean, what I'm talking Dick, about, Yeah, right? no, Dick Thaler has research <laughs> in experimental settings with college students that this is uh, happening. Now, I so I have research that says the contrary. Yeah. I'm sure Dick Thaler would say that my research is not good. It is fine. We can have disagreements. <laughs> but the thing that I am sure about, mm-hmm. so even if it didn't, even if the spending effects were roughly similar, people had no idea. Right. Stealth stimulus is how how is that a good policy in terms of the political effects? The year after making work pay went into place, and that was another one that was spread out over yeah. paychecks, the most common mistake in filing tax returns was not claiming making work pay. Mm-hmm. Now, the Internal Revenue Service cleaned that up. I mean, they were looking. They knew, and so they fixed it. But that just shows people didn't get it. 
or they didn't they didn't get it in terms of realizing right. they had gotten it. And I okay, so this is more anecdotal. We do all of the research on the um surveys of consumers at the University of Michigan, so it's a representative sample of adults. One of our research projects, we got a little too fancy in some question we asked, and the data came back and looked like crap. So I went and actually listened to the tapes because we were trying to figure out what went wrong. In the end, we confused the coder, so I was able to fix, recode the data, and it was fine. But in doing this, I, you know, was listening to people as they're answering the questions, and there was one woman. And so we, and we don't assume in these surveys that people come in and understand what the stimulus right. was, because I mean, this, there's no reason to think that everyone would know all these details. So we have this little, you know, couple sentences and explain, you know, you get it in every paycheck. And on average, it's about, you know, $50. And this one woman was like, well, you can tell the president what he can do with that $50. I mean, like, because she was uh, like, this is nothing. <laughs> I have all these problems and you're just right, 50 right. bucks. Whereas $1,000 for a lot of Americans, you notice that. $1,000 is great. Yeah. I mean, this is I, one of the smartest things somebody ever told me about politics is he said, uh, you can't you can't take the politics out of politics. Um, and I feel like that's a problem sometimes with some of the stuff that gets cooked up uh, in, in academic economics, uh, where people will almost brag about how, like, politically naive uh, their ideas are. But, you know, Managing the macroeconomy is an inherently political task. Yeah. It's done by the government on behalf of the American people. And to be done effectively, it has to be done in ways that are legible and legitimate, right? And I think a, a lot of the power of this idea, right, I mean, big checks, universality bolsters that, right? So that, like, everybody can say, I understand what is happening here and why it's supposed to be good for me, I, I mean, you mentioned the uh, the question of underwater mortgage relief, which is like such an incredible divide between I think a lot of the technical analysis says that would have helped an enormous amount, but it's like most people didn't have underwater mortgages and there was no mood to mm -hmm. like help out the minority of people who did. Whereas here, it's, it's like right. literally well, everybody gets the help. So yeah, no, and I think I think it would free up bandwidth. Every recession, they come in all flavors and varieties. Uh -huh. I think we're in a really bad place if we're fighting the last recession. Sure. Like it ain't gonna come through mortgage finance. It's, it'll be something else. Right. So, but if you have some stimulus like these payments, it gets out fast. Then you clear up space for Congress technocrat to sit down and really think hard about the unique problems mm -hmm. in that recession. And they just didn't – I mean, that would have been – those – the issues that they faced with the mortgage disruption were really complicated. Mm -hmm. They didn't have the time, in my opinion, to do that right. And, and like you said, there was a lot of politics that had to be maneuvered too. One thing I will say broadly about the SOM rule, and, and I think this is why it got like picked up in the event, is it could be a trigger – for a lot of different policies right. that would kick on automatically in the recession. Now, it's not, it would not be the right trigger for the uh, extended unemployment benefits. Like it makes so much sense, those are levels. But one of the other proposals in the book was kick out infrastructure spending. Mm -hmm. Like have a list ahead of time of what is actually shovel ready and kick it out. The the transfers through Medicaid to state and local governments, mm -hmm. those were really important. In the, in the Great Recession, in the recovery, that was, that was being creative. 
they're having that ready to go so we can get ahead of the what were contractions in state government. I mean, the number of teachers that lost their job. I, there were just there were huge problems that showed up at the state level. If you had the SOM rule to kick off, now it's time to send some of that money. Again, I think that one is a much harder politically to pre-commit mm-hmm. to. But again, if you had like a package of these automatic states, like it might work. Right. I mean, I could imagine like a whole suite of things, right? One of which is direct payments to individuals. One of which is general revenue sharing with mm-hmm. state governments. One of which is some kind of business tax cut that Republicans like, um, you know, and, and you roll it all together and you say, OK, this is like the recession fire hose, yep. right? And that would all be things that um, have a similarly appropriate trigger, right? And and would all sort of turn on at once right. in after like one quarter right. of recession on, on average rather than after a year. Right. And I think we have good research that shows that that whole suite of uh, stimulus policies, it works. Mm-hmm. So I, while I, I don't agree with the way making work pay was structured, the Obama administration, Christy Romer leading the Council of Economic Advisors, I mean, they threw everything they had mm-hmm. at the recession. It should have been thrown at the recession back in 2008. Right. But, you know, better late than never. But they really had a principle of let's just not, we don't want to go all in on one type of stimulus. Mm-hmm. We want We want to go big. They should have gone bigger if Larry Summers would have gotten quieter. Uh, they should have gone bigger, but they went in so many different directions that that was really successful. Right. So, yeah, there's a lot of ways. But for all of that, you need a trigger. Right. Especially if you're going to go big. That just amplifies how costly the mistake would be if it's mm-hmm. like, oh, eh, we're, it's really not. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> right, yes. You need, you, need, you need a credible trigger. And then hopefully, I mean, the credibility can even reduce the, the, the need to level it. Mm-hmm. Um, so should we talk about um, the, the, this is the Washington Center for Equitable Growth. So what, what does this have to do with equality? This is about supporting people, mm-hmm. supporting businesses. I mean, small businesses were hurt very hard mm-hmm. in the recession. I think Again, you know, I, I don't have these targeted payments, but the reality of it is that this is going to mean more sure. to people who are have less income, particularly less wealth. Uh, so in addition to doing the macro forecasting at the Fed, the last two years, I managed the Survey of Household Economics and Decision Making. Okay. So this reinforced uh, an understanding, having looked at consumer behavior for a long time, that there is a – it's a minority of households, but it is a non-trivial fraction of U.S. households that have incredibly thin financial buffers. Mm-hmm. And that they have they have very little money that they could just get to quickly if something bad happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the statistics that is very compelling from the survey is we asked people, what would you do if you were faced with a $400 emergency expense? That's what would you do, not what you could do. When the survey launched in 2013, remember this is when that stimulus went away, half of U.S. adults told us that they would not pay with cash, put it on a credit card they'd pay off at the end of the month, so something equivalent to cash, couldn't pull it out of their savings account, or wouldn't pull it out of their savings account, they'd do some kind of borrowing. Mm -hmm. There was another, I mean, it it was— Smaller than 50%, it was more like in the 15% that just told us, 
by no means could I pay this right mm-hmm. now. Okay, that's $400. Like, that, that is not a recession shock. Right. That, that's just like your car breaks down. Right, that's just any kind of bad luck. Yeah, and so that—now, it's improved over the expansion. So last year, at the end of 2008, it was more like 40% of households would have to borrow or—, or yeah, they would borrow. They would do something like that. Yeah, see, this is— We this, could do a whole show on this survey yeah, yeah. question. So, and, but I don't want to get too hooked on the numbers, and this gets misquoted, and then we, you know, explain it away. If you just look at balance sheet data, yeah. like how much money— So the Fed has another survey, Survey of Consumer— There are millions of people— Finances. A quarter, who have no money. A quarter of U.S. households in 2016 did not have—did not have $400 in easily accessible assets. Right. Like, that— that's mind-boggling. Like so, the way in which I would see this as it being an equitable policy is that it's going to help those people more. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're really. I mean, frankly, I think we should have a better safety net to help them all the time. Sure, that's another topic. But I think back to just growth. So that's like thinking about inside of the distribution, looking at differences across households where they're at. As I said before, I you know. Cutting a recession short, making it less severe, this has important implications for the entire economy. Mm -hmm. So if you think of, like, national growth going forward, and that's also part of the mission of equitable growth. This isn't just about redistribution. Sometimes that's an important piece of Mm -hmm. policies. we got to think about, oh, my gosh, this wealth inequality is massive. Now, there are a lot of different proposals that Mm -hmm. one could take Mm -hmm. to address this. But there's also just this aspect of— Growing the whole pie, but it's people also. It's it's people on the on the margins, right? I mean, who uh, African Americans, people with less formal education, people with criminal records, who sort of benefit the most from a robust labor. Right? I mean, obviously, like nobody is happy about recessions, and everybody prefers economic growth. Right. But I mean, it it doesn't really impact everyone. Equally, it, I mean, it seems to me one reason why this incredibly slow recovery was considered tolerable is that sort of college-educated white people don't suffer as much from the weak labor market. Yeah, no, and I remember in early in the recovery walking around. So I live close. I'm in Arlington, right? So I walk sure. into Clarendon. That's my <laughs> like, you know, clear my head, go for a walk. And I can remember walking around on a Friday night and I was mad. Because there were people, and they're out doing their partying thing, uh-huh. and they're going around. Whereas when I would go back to Indiana and visit my family, there there was nobody going out and partying in mass. Mm-hmm. I mean, people were tightening their belt. It's a recession. So this was where where I lived. House prices didn't drop. People didn't—not as many people lost their jobs. People still had good—like, I had a good income through the whole thing. So it was just— and D.C. is where the policy is made. Right. So there could be this disconnect, and it may be a little easier to do the whole moral thing. Like, well, it's their fault, and oh, uh-huh. they should have saved more. Why don't they have at least $400? So I think that that's problematic. We do see—and this was in our survey—every single dimension of economic well-being we look at. Well mm-hmm. beyond this, how would you deal with an emergency expense? Blacks and Hispanics are in a worse place financially, less educated— in some cases, young adults. Occasionally, it shows up in terms of geography, urban, terms rural. Mm-hmm. So there's just like a baseline in terms of preparation. Right, right. I mean, 
as a whole, the U.S. households are never ready for a recession, but there are particular <laughs> groups that are really Less, not ready. Yeah, more vulnerable. And then, like you said, there is an aspect in an expansion going into a recession of last in, first out. Mm -hmm. So right now, and I, I love that Chairman Powell and the Federal Reserve is embracing this and talking about it, what we're seeing are people being brought back into work that sadly in many cases have been written off. Right. And whether they were long-term unemployed, whether they had a health disability, whether they are in a, a racial ethnic minority, whether they have a criminal record, at this point employers are going to have to like bring them in, get them trained, do that kind of stuff. Now, when the recession happens— and it doesn't have to happen anytime soon. We could be uh -huh, Australia. Right. I could go for decades. Um, but they'll be the first ones to go. Right. Like, and that, and then they're the least prepared. Right, right, so. right, right, right. No, I mean, so I, I do think that's that's important, you know, because I, I I think sometimes people on the on the left get the idea that all this macroeconomic stuff is like it's too technocratic. It doesn't have like the strong social justice angles uh, that they care about, but it really matters. I mean, discriminatory policy is incredibly costly in a tight labor market, uh, but cheap in a lax one. Um, accommodating people with disabilities can be co incredibly costly in a recession, but it's cheap. In a strong labor market, you get good people. Uh, so, but before I let you go, I, I like to close out. I like to ask people, uh, what, what did I miss? What, what do you wish I had asked you here? It's a, a broad terrain, obviously. Are we in a recession right now? Ah, are okay. we? Or, or is it coming soon? <laughs> okay, so in November, unemployment rate, 3.5%. Pretty good. It was really good. Uh, <laughs> historically good. And the SOM rule is a touch negative. So, like, it's that 3.5% is basically in line with its low over the last 12 months, a little bit below. Okay, so we are not in a recession right now. Mm -hmm. Like, this is... No, 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 uh, which is good, right? But then, so I use the SOM rule to think about when to send out payments. Are we in a recession? Mm -hmm. So colleagues at Hamilton Project took it another step, and they're like, okay, let's look at readings of the SOM rule before it's a half a percentage point. Just using historical recession episodes, what does that tell us about the likelihood we'll be in a recession in 12 months? Okay. The likelihood will be one in 24 months, so one year, two year. Okay, so a reading of the SOM rule that's a little bit less than zero has a really low probability of having a recession in the next year. So I firmly believe that we are not going to be in a recession by election next year. Okay. So I've had a lot of problems with the political discourse around that because— um, Someone in particular is going to benefit from that, and we're sure. going to hear that. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, so, and and what I mean by that is, well, it, just to be more specific, and this is from their estimates, is that there's about a 10% chance mm -hmm. that a year from now we're going to be in a recession. Right. Uh, now, it could be the unemployment rate is rising. Sure. You know, if it's up three tens, like this isn't a good sign then. And— the the average chance of being in a recession any any given month is like twice that. Right. Okay. So so it's really low that we're going to be in a recession by uh, the election. So we're in subdued recession. We're in a risk. subdued. Yeah. This is like, I mean, basically lights are flashing green, uh -huh, not uh -huh. like red. And even if we look two years out, yeah, the chance of being in a recession is lower 
than just the baseline, like in any given month. So earlier this year, there was a lot of talk about recession Mm -hmm. fears, uh, which is frankly surprising and maybe made the book very well timed. Uh, (laughs) I didn't think at that point, given how strong the labor market was, that that was a credible near-term threat. I mean, we should always be worried. I'm a macro forecaster. I'm just pessimistic. Bad things, bad things will happen. But recessions do not die of old age. This could keep going. The labor market stays in a good place. The Fed doesn't get too, you know, antsy about like inflation <laughs> might someday show up. This could this could this expansion could go on. There'd be incredible benefits. So so we're not in one. I don't see one. In the near term, but but we always should be vigilant. Plenty of Congress to pre-commit to whenever the next recession does happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, so let's do it. Let's get on it. Okay, thank you so much, Claudia Sam, Washington Center for Equitable Growth. Thanks, Malachi Brodis, uh, engineering here, Jackson Bierfeld, our producer, and the weeds will return on Tuesday. Mm-hmm.